Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Jay Helms, and if you're new here, if this is your first time discovering the W2 Capitalist, we, as the W2 Capitalist, are here as a resource to help you and your family build wealth through real estate investing so that you and your spouse can spend more time with your young and growing family. We are also here to help you create a bigger nest egg and gravitate you toward building generational wealth that you can pass on to your kids, they can pass on to their kids, and so on and so forth, right? The true definition of generational wealth. Anyway, before we get into today's episode with Mr. Neil Bawa, I want to point you to our sponsor, Quest Trust. Quest is my self-directed IRA custodian. They were not my first self-directed IRA custodian, but they have definitely shown me that there is a night and day difference between those folks, those organizations. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, if you've had an old IRA from a previous employer, doesn't matter if you quit yesterday, got fired yesterday, or if it was 10 years ago, or even longer, right? Whatever the case may be, if it's an old IRA, an old retirement plan, and you want to use those monies to invest in real estate, in your own deal, in a syndication, or even in just another business, you can convert that old IRA into a self-directed IRA with a custodian and use those monies to invest in a better, more reliable vehicle than the stock market, okay? So check those, check them out today at w2capitalist.com forward slash quest. That's w2capitalist.com forward slash Q-U-E-S-T and set up your free consultation with them today. That link is in the show notes for you to grab as well. All right, but now let's get into today's episode with Mr. Neil Bawa. capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. Neil Bawa is a technologist who is universally known in the real estate circles as the mad scientist of multifamily. We get into a lot of discussions about just that today. So besides being one of the most in-demand speakers in commercial real estate, Neil is a data guru, a process freak, and an outsourcing expert. Neil treats his $250 plus million multifamily portfolio as an ongoing experiment in efficiency and optimization. The mad scientist lives by two mantras. His first mantra is that we can only manage what we can measure. His second mantra is the data beats gut feel by a million miles. These mantras and a dozen other disruptive beliefs drive profit for his 300 plus investors. Let's bring him in. And Neil, welcome to the show, sir. How are you today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, Jay. Very excited to be here. Absolutely. And I still feel like I'm sitting here with egg on my face because when I reached out to you initially, I was like, Neil, I want to come on your podcast. I want to talk to people about being a W2 capitalist. And you're like, uh, I don't have a podcast. <laughs> and it's because I you've been invited. on so many, man. When you, yeah, when I, I get, I get invited you. to lots of podcasts. So people ask me, you know, Neil, what's your podcast? And my, and my answer is everyone else's podcast. And, yeah. and that works fine for me. And, you know, People go to podcasts for certain reasons to spread their message. And my message is being spread really well. Um, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, that's it, it is. It's definitely reaching a lot of people, uh, at least a lot of people that I'm 
in my circle and some level or whatnot, because that's how I got to discover you. And then it was like once one person said Neil Bawa, I was like, then I kept hearing it over and over again. I was like, all right, I got to talk to this guy. I found out what he's about. You, so you're a bit of a technologist. I know that's in your in your bio. And we were just talking about um, how this weekend you spent um, dealing with some home improvement stuff. I'll just put it that's that. Right. What, Smart what are you messing with? Okay. Well, so I have every kind of smart home improvement in my house is possible. So I was trying to get my fireplaces to come on when I say Alexa Zen. Now it's going to start talking in the background, by the way, because it just heard its name. Um, so when I use that word, I want the fireplace to turn on. I want certain lights to dim. I want the certain lights to turn on. I want a certain spa music from Spotify to play. And I want all of those things to happen at the same time. What? So that was my weekend to figure out that, you know, the response that she would give to that particular word. And I succeeded at the end of it, though. Sometimes the fireplace doesn't turn off when it's supposed to. So I'm still dealing with that. <laughs> uh, that's incredible, man. That's, uh, I'm assuming they're all gas fireplaces. <laughs> no, th these are these are LED fireplaces. So they're, they're oh, it's okay. a big okay. fire. But when it turns on, you you have the option to say either. A, I'm not going to use its word name, A, and then Zen or Zen with heat. When I say Zen with heat, the fireplace doesn't just turn on as an LED display. It also turns the heater on. So these are 1500 watt heaters. Wow. Okay. Wow. So, Newer so you're, you are a technologist at heart. I, I mean, that's in your bio. So where did yeah. all this come from? Where did, where did the technology or, or strive to become a technologist come from? Well, I, I think it starts where, where most people start, right? You're, you're, you know, your education, right? So I am a technologist, mm -hmm. a computer science degree uh, by education. And what I found was that sitting in a cubicle programming was the most boring thing ever. I wanted to get out there and do stuff. So what I started looking at was applying that that technology, applying the ability to do coding, applying the ability to do, you know, to, to do data science. And I found that in real estate. So just like everybody else, I went out, I had a traditional job. I kind of worked my way up the corporate ladder. I had a successful exit as a, as a partner in a company that we sold for 50 plus million bucks. And then I decided nice. to retire. And the first month, Jay was awesome. Second month was okay. The third month, I was ready to kill myself. I mean, it was just retirement <laughs> is not for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I cannot retire. <laughs> I think that's death for me. And I gave, I gave it a shot for three months. It just didn't work for me. So what I was doing was, while I was, so, so let, let me kind of step back and this will kind of give you some insight into my story, right? So I'm running a technology company. It has hundreds of employees. I'm chief operations officer and the CEO is actually the owner so doesn't even show up at work sometimes. Um, right. So I'm running the company for him. And in 2002, he says, Neil, we are not going to uh, lease our offices. We're going to build one from scratch. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's a great idea. I've always wanted to build an office. And he's like, yes, and you're building it. And I'm like, are you freaking insane? I've never even rehabbed my house, right? You want me to build any, a large campus from scratch? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to give you like a general contractor guy and I'm going to help you. And he needed it. He did. He, he knew so much. I, I wouldn't have you know, made it without him. He helped an incredible amount. And he also gave me some mentors, some people that helped me. So from 2002 to 2003, I'm running a company with $40 million of revenue in the, in, during the day. And then in the evening, I'm building a new campus three miles away, right? <laughs> and that was so insane that I remember this 10-month period when we were building this campus. Every single day, I bitched and I moaned and I complained and I whined about how this was not my work. And in the 
And and once it was done, I haven't stopped thanking him since, right? Because mm. what you learn when you actually do real estate from scratch, right? Completely from scratch is insane. I, I see people all the time buying large multifamily properties. They have no idea how these things are ever built. And and the, the knowledge is absolutely spectacular. And to a dork like me, I mean, geeks love this kind of stuff, right? So like I can walk into a room right now and look up and tell you what the occupancy of that room is. Like, in, doesn't that sound really dorky? I mean, I can do that. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> learn all this stuff. And then I ended up building five more campuses over the next 10 years for the same company until we sold it in 2013. I can tell you that the real estate was an incredible part of our exit. I mean, the, the company yeah. that came in and bought us from Chicago loved the fact that we had custom built campuses that were precisely designed for her use and so ridiculously optimized that none of our competitors could ever catch us. Right? Yeah. So real estate was, it was a weird initiation for me. It wasn't a flip. It wasn't a rental. It was a real estate can change my technology business. It can give mm. me an unfair advantage. So I learned real estate in a completely different way. And then of course, as you can imagine, right after that 2004 you know, campus was built, I started doing single family and then started kind of getting further into it. And, and that's another story, but that kind of gives you an insight on, on yeah. the, uh, you know, into how I got from technology, high technology to real estate to, you know, today we have about $320 million of real estate, mostly multifamily, but we've got student housing and storage and industrial assets. We've got townhome assets. We're building 180 townhomes in a tertiary market called Idaho Falls, all kinds of assets, right? But it yeah. really started from this love of construction. So where did you where did you go to school? Uh, in in India, in Mumbai. Okay. So, so okay. I, I my computer science degree is from India. I didn't. I came here for a master's and never really got into it because <laughs> I came here in 1997. At the end of 97, and the market okay. was so hot. I mean, what people were willing to pay back then was a little bit insane for somebody like me with only three years of experience. I just walked in at the exact right time, so I never really went back for my master's. I, I tell gotcha. people, I, I think. I have a master's in in experience, and and I think there that matters more than, than a, a, a second degree. I have a computer science degree as well. It's actually hanging on the wall over there uh, behind the coat rack. I actually brag about it being a two point five GPA. I am certain your GPA was much higher than mine. Accidentally <laughs> higher, yes. I mean, Accidentally I tried to sneak ass, out as many yeah. classes as I could. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't the, the kind of guy that was fixated on a four GPA, and that's not even an Indian concept. But I, you know, the okay. equivalent of it. I wasn't fixated on it. I'm very much focused on applying technology, right? So even with gotcha. real estate, um, if you look at what has made me popular out there, it's this course. So if you go to udemy.com slash real focus, you'll see this course and you'll notice that there's at least 10,000 people taking the course at any point in time. So right now, go to udemy.com slash real focus. You'll see 10,000 10, people. There. They're all taking this course. There's huge numbers of people that take it and there's like a thousand reviews um, on the course. It's the most popular real estate course on the Udemy website. They have hundreds and hundreds of them. It's the most popular one. And what, what's interesting is it's applied data science. Now, if I called it that, nobody would ever take it. So I didn't mm -hmm. call it that, right? So I called it location magic, you know, the, the, the best cities and neighborhoods in the U.S. for real estate <laughs> investment, because that's really what it is. And people absolutely loved it and got me notoriety, both with people agreeing with me and loving the course. I mean, obviously, with a thousand reviews that people liked it. Yeah. But, but the fact that there were also people who disliked it, who said you're wrong. And I loved that because it was like, OK, I want to know what you're telling me that I don't understand. And a lot of these people had very legitimate points about things 
where they were successful in cities that I was bashing in my course, like Detroit, mm -hmm. Michigan. And they were telling me, this is how you make money in Detroit, Michigan. I think I probably learned more there than mm -hmm. I did while I was making the actual course and, and you know, putting my real focus system. It's, it's a set of metrics. So it's a set of five metrics at a city level and five metrics at a neighborhood level. And those metrics basically allow you to cherry pick cities and neighborhoods in the U.S for future real estate investment, not for the past, gotcha. not based on past performance, but based on what it, how it will do in the future. So a lot hmm. of that goes back to my computer science degree, understanding um, you know, st statistics. I, I was a statistical major. And so okay. I understood that. And I, uh, that allows me to have a little bit of a crystal ball. That's also why I like multifamily. Okay, a lot of people don't get this, but what I'm about to say, the moment I say it, it'll make sense to you. Anybody who's in apartments in multifamily has an 18-month crystal ball. And that 18-month crystal ball is actually really, really simple. It's ridiculously simple. Go to a market where home prices are going absolutely crazy, like 10, 12, 15, 20% home price mm -hmm. increases. 18 months from the time that they start going crazy and start going into that double-digit annual, you'll start seeing rents go crazy. Why? Mm. Because think about it. All these people that are in that city, what are they all trying? Nobody wants to live in apartments. Not one person that I know that says, I absolutely adore apartments. You know, I would never live in a single family home. Who wants to live in a single family home? But what happens is, you know, with incomes going up 3%, home prices going up 12%, each month there's a certain percentage of people that, have, that drop out of that race to, to, to buy a single family. They just know they can't get to it. They've tried, their income's rising slowly and home prices are going up. Like, it's never going to work. But that person, a month ago, they had this dream of being a homeowner. So when they finally move over to apartments, they don't go for a shitty apartment. They go for a nice one that's recently rehabbed because they still mm. want some portion of that dream to live on. So if you are an apartment owner and you rehab your apartments and you've got the kind of countertops and the steel appliances, now that person comes in and says, okay, I can't get my dream, but this is the closest to it. I'm going to mm. take this on, right? And that's why when we build new construction apartments, we build nice ones, we build balconies, uh, we, we, we do some interesting stuff with them, we raise the ceilings up 10 feet instead of nine. We do those kinds of things because we know that that, that emotion that's driving these disappointed people that say, hey, I almost was there, I almost was a homeowner, means that when they come in, they're in an emotional state and that's what makes me successful. And anyone who's in multifamily that understands this can be very successful, right? Go to places that are incredibly hot right now for single family. And you'll do really, really well by the time your kind of, you know, your multifamily assets are built or, or purchased. Yeah. But doesn't it matter like when you get into this? So I'm in Pensacola, single family has been hot for years, right? For, I don't what, know, four what, or what five years. Is that? Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola. Mm -hmm. Yep. And multifamily you can't buy i mean there's the things that i don't understand what folks are doing right now um unless they're tapping into what you just said and they're seeing in this single family prices go up uh more rapidly than folks can afford them right and they i just have trouble understanding how people who make an emotional decision on trying to buy i'm gonna use air quotes their dream house when they can't get it, then they revert back and say, well, I'm just going to go get a bigger apartment, right? Or a better looking apartment. I'm having trouble what connecting are, what those are their dots. Choices, Jay? What are their choices? At that point, they know that they've lost the race to be a homeowner. So they have two choices. Rent a single family 
mm-hmm. or rent a big apartment. There isn't a third choice that I'm aware of unless it's, you know, live in my car or, you know, live in grandma's basement. Well, they can say where they're at, right? And continue to save and, and um, wait for an opportunity to come along. But you're, you're saying that do. they don't do that. Most of them don't. Some of them do, mm-hmm. most of them don't, because at that point, they're still chasing their dream. And where they're living is an admission of defeat. And mm-hmm. by either renting a single family home or renting a rehabbed apartment, they get away from that thought of defeat that, you know, I tried to be a homeowner and it didn't really work for me because prices in Pensacola are going up 10%. My income's only going up 3%. It's just not yeah. going to work, right? So I think that there's a minority of people that do what you say, which is they just stay where they are. But others, they make a change, and that gives them that that um, feeling of, okay, I tried something, I did something, I did something different. And And the beauty of multifamily is that we only need a certain percentage of those people to make that decision, one out of five, one out of 10. And that's enough, because if you look at the single-family market, it's so enormous. There's so many single-family homes in the U.S., but multifamily actually is a fairly small market in comparison. If you look at how many multifamilies we build in a year, it's like 300,000 in a good year. Well, we're building a million. Yeah, but how many units does that represent? How many 300,000 units, units, like actual units, right? So that, okay. so if it's, you know, so that, that, that is, you know, a count by count unit that might be like, you know, 2000 buildings or 5,000 buildings, whatever gotcha. it might be. But single family, we never build less than a million, even in a bad year. Right. So single family is a much larger market. Multifamily is a smaller market. So imagine a much larger market spinning off people for us. And that's what works for us. Right. Also, there's this hmm. concept of cap rate where you, you know, from your perspective, you're like, well, this doesn't really make sense. And the answer is it makes sense if you think a completely different way. If you start applying cap rate methodology to single to multifamily, it makes sense. But if you start applying single family metrics to multifamily, it doesn't make sense, right? And, and then I have to make a, a confession. If your market is hot, if you're able to build single family homes and flip them on a you know, value for your time basis, you're going to make more money than multifamily in most cases. Like I'll, I'll say overwhelming case, 90 plus percent of the case. So then why would anybody do multifamily? Well, the answer is, the problem with single family is when you're finished with that flip, you're starting again. And a lot of people, they get burned out by that, even though it's actually the same actions that you're taking over and over again. But this is very common. People get burned out doing flips. They get burned out even doing rentals. Whereas with multifamily, we go in, we buy a multifamily. The first 12 months are insane amounts of work. You know, We're improving it. We're repaving the parking lots. Right. We're changing the roofs. But at the 12-month point, now that we've done it and now the whole property is new looking or nice looking now it becomes much easier to convince tenants to take the the newer rents because the whole property is done all of the upgrades are done yeah and don't you think though with people who get tired of doing flips that there are also people who get tired of doing what you just talked about right because a lot of the flippers that i talk to they can be in and out of a property in 90 days and they're okay with it right and they love that timeline what you're talking about is a long project right it's 12 months probably at minimum to turn around an asset that's got to be exhausting work. And that's got to be, it's got to be, you know, that's got to wear on you as well. And after you do four or five of these, or if you have four or five of them going on at the same time, I think the, the, the burnout factor is very similar, right? It just depends on who that person is and what they're, they're willing to do. 
Does that make sense? Well, on that, we disagree. And I'll tell you why. Because once I'm done with that flip and sell it, all I can do is enjoy the money. And then I, you know, to make more money, I have to start again. With an apartment, after my 12 months of work, absolutely, you know, there lots of work. The next four years, I'm spending very little time. There are properties where we are only doing a 30-minute meeting every month. And that is the sum total. And even if I didn't do that meeting, the probably would, property would probably do really, really well. So yes, you get one year of hard work, but then you have four years of enjoyment. And so that is what is different. And I can tell you, Jay, that the number of people that move over from flips to multifamily is pretty high. The people that go from multifamily, if they make it, if they mm -hmm. make it back to flips is very low. So that is it's something that I've studied for a long time. And I think some of that is because they consider it going backwards. They don't want to do a unit at a time, even if you know they're making more money. A lot yeah. of it is, though, because they enjoy the capital gains benefits, the taxation benefits. Keep in mind, multifamily, yeah. most of the money that we make is capital gains. Um, and you reach a point in your life where the taxes become much more important. But yeah. I, yeah. I, I have no doubt that Jay Helms is right. And there are people who've gone over to multifamily and jumped back to... Um, to uh, flips simply because they didn't burn out as much on the flip, right? I just find a lot of people do. Yeah, well, that's, that's the kind of folks you're wanting to attract, right? To to get part of, to uh, invest with you and partner up with you. Um, I also, I'm wondering, because I haven't, I've only been investing for six years and, you know, I have never done a flip, never, never flipped anything. We started with single family rentals. And one of the things that I see now or I hear from other flippers is, man, it's hard to find deals. And even the guys who buy and hold single family, they're like, man, I want to get into multifamily. And now it seems like multifamily is just oversaturated with everybody and their brother is a syndicator, right? And and I I have to re I have to believe that the market that we're in now, one of the things that you even put on your Instagram was 48 out of the 50 states are reaching all-time highs in real estate, right? How long is this run going to continue? Um, I do believe there are folks that are out there who think that this is going to be an evergreen field and it's never going to go down again. And I think they're smoking something. Um, but I also... Something so really I'll, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, I think there's, there's this huge window we're looking at, right? For um, from 2010-ish until now where flipping was huge in 2010 people started making money and getting burnout like you're talking about on on flipping and they're like man i can i can make a little bit more money not have to work as hard if i invest in passive now everybody's kind of flooding to to the passive investor case and i feel like we're on the tip of that whole mountain and if people aren't careful it's all going to come rolling down but the people who are smart and they get out from certain investments and send themselves up that now maybe a year or two from now, they can make a lot more money flipping than they can in passive investing. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> you're right. Um, you're right. Multifamily is getting saturated. I see saturation everywhere. I see, you know, I can tell you this. I mean, I am a bread and butter multifamily guy. I buy value add properties. I have, you know, hundreds of millions of, of them. I have the last time I purchased a value add multifamily was November last year. Mm. Okay. So it's been a year. I haven't purchased any. And you go, which so for a guy like you, company? that's, that's right. a big, that's a big drought. Right. So for it a guy like me, that wouldn't I mean, be that big of a drought. <laughs> but. It's, it's gigantic. It's massive. Right. Yeah. 
and and why am I not doing it? Because I am like you. I'm in the same mental place as you that look, too many people piling on, too many people overpaying for properties. And what's happening is that the gap, so the way multifamily functions is there has to be a gap between old value add properties where you buy the property and you improve it and new construction, right? So there, right. there has to be a certain gap. And if that gap shrinks too much, then it doesn't make sense to be doing this value add stuff because you're too close to, to buy, basically being able to construct a new building and just hold on to it or even yep. buy a new building. I mean, there are syndicators in my business that are no <laughs> longer buying value add. They just simply buy a new construction building that's five years old, which means it's yeah. new. They just buy yeah. it and then they're like, we're gonna just hold on to it because we're gonna get pretty much the same returns and we're not taking any risk, right? They're not getting pretty much the same returns, they're getting lower returns, but their risk profile is much lower. And so I agree with you. So to me, you might wonder, what if, what has this guy done for the last 12 months if he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing? <laughs> the answer is, yeah. I'm building multifamily. So when okay. that gap between value add and new construction drops, then I want to be on the other side. I want to be on the other side where I'm creating much more value, right? Value add is creation of value. New construction is create, creation of fantastic value because you take a piece of dirt and you build a, a gorgeous building, from it, right? So if you know how to do it, you certainly won't lose money. You might not make money if you, you get caught in the wrong times. The other thing that helped me, which I certainly didn't anticipate, by the way, this, this is just luck. So when, I, when we started doing new construction, we didn't start doing it last year in November. We started doing it like two years ago, right? Because we, st yeah. we started seeing this, this, oh my God. I mean, every building in the world is called value add. Even if there's no value to add, they still call it value add. It's nonsensical. That's the, that's the phrase, doing, man. That's the key yeah, word, so, right? <laughs> exactly. So we, we started doing new construction and then COVID hit. And for a moment, mm -hmm. we were like, oh my God, we're so screwed, right? What do we do with new construction? Then we realized something to our utter shock. The value add business, multifamily business, those lenders tightened up. Loans went from 4.2% to 6 or 7, making the whole deal not work. Right. And then on top of that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two big lenders in the multifamily space said, we want nine months of your principal interest taxes and insurance to be impounded with us before we give you a loan. At minimum, I, nine months. That. I've seen yeah, 12 nine, and I've seen 18, 18 too, right? right? Yeah. So, so I, I looked at that and I said, this makes no sense whatsoever, right? So. And, and I don't know how this whole COVID thing is going to go. Let's take a look at new construction. Guess what they did in new construction? They said, nothing's changed for us. We're just going to be more strict with you on your liquidity. So keep more money liquid. So I, mm. what I went out is I sold a bunch of homes that I had and put a million dollars in my bank to increase my liquidity. That's what the banks wanted in case something went wrong. And then I started doing new construction deals and the interest rates kept dropping. From March, April, May, June, July, <laughs> they just kept dropping. No impounds because there is no principal to pay when you're right. when you're doing new construction deals, right? It's it's always interest only. So I have ended up in this completely by accident, where last month I closed a loan on a new construction project at four percent, right? So the risk reward scenario has flipped around completely, and while I didn't cause it. I'm smart enough to know, oh, okay, it's benefiting me. So I'm taking advantage. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you kind of phrase it as being lucky, but that's, that's just hard work meeting opportunity right there. The, the years that you've put in to figure out how this whole thing works and being, um, 
observing what the market's doing saying, wait a minute, this is not, this is not how things should be working and taking advantage of that is, is definitely, um, I mean, it's not being lucky and it's not on, as you said, it wasn't on purpose, which you didn't go into it thinking this way, but you observed, you, you, uh, you knew exactly what was about to happen and you adjusted, which I think a lot of people are going to, um, be hurting in the next couple of years because they haven't done something like that. Um, I, I want to ask you this. So, so where we're at and we're on the panhandle of Florida back in 2006, 2007, when single families were just crazy, these developers were coming in, they were, they would put their flag in the sand and they would say, Hey, we're building a high rise condo, right? People would buy in, they would turn around and sell it to somebody else make a huge profit. I mean, it was almost just like wholesaling, right? Before the thing ever, before the first piece of cement was ever poured. And yep. that thing would change hands three or four times before the building was ever ready for anybody to move in. Total scam. Well, a lot of people made money out, out of it. The condos were built and then 2008 happened and never, and you know, uh, yeah, scam might be a great word. Do you think in the multifamily space, do you think developers will ever have the opportunity to start building things and it change hands a couple of times before the final product is ever delivered? I don't think so. I, I think that while there are three or four scenarios that I thought of while you were talking that are similar to that, they are very niche scenarios. They're very edge case scenarios. The vast majority of multifamily, you have two scenarios and one is closer than, than, the, than the other. So either... On the multifamily side, you're building this big ass building. And until that building's built, you can't really sell of it, sell any of it. I'm not doing a lot of that right now. You know what I'm building? I'm building quadplex townhomes. It's still multifamily, but I mm -hmm. build quadplex townhomes. And then I sell them to investors even before I start building. But these are single family investors that take a single family um, Freddie Mac small balance loan to buy a quadplex from me. Okay. Yeah, you, you're kind of building a spec home, right? And you have an, an end buyer and, in and, mind. And they're also right? very quick. If you, you know, multifamily takes 18 months to build, but a spec home, right? A quadplex spec home takes the same kind of six months to construct like a bricks and sticks, like single you know, family. single family home, yep. right? So no difference there. So what you're doing is you're zoning that as a lot and you're selling it to individual investors as quadplexes. How is it multifamily? Because I'm building 50 of them at a time. Mm -hmm. Right, so 50 quadplexes is 200 units. And how am I hedging my bets? Well, firstly, I can sell each of the each of those townhomes to the single-family market if the multifamily market goes down. I can sell the quadplexes before I make them, or if neither one happens, <laughs> I'll just keep building them and hold them for rental. So I'm giving myself all three exits, right? Yeah. So and and these are not designed for maximum profit; they're designed for minimal risk. So gotcha. when you build townhomes, you actually give up on a lot of profit because townhomes are half the density of apartments. So you're building half as many, mm. which means you can't quite get the same rents. But on the other hand, you have lots and lots of exits. Yeah. And that's, that's probably one of the most important things for folks, right? And they don't realize it. And I have this conversation all the time. You don't have an ex you don't have a single exit strategy, let alone three, right? Um, you, on the other hand, I said, you folks listening, watching, if you don't have an exit strategy on your property, whatever you're buying, whatever you're investing into, stop a minute, just think about it. Right. Neil just laid out, Hey, I have three different exit strategies for what I'm developing here. 
you got to do the same thing, right? Well, no matter what asset class you're in. Speaking of asset classes, and there was something on your um, Instagram feed. I know you, you do a lot on Instagram. Uh, I'm a little jealous of what you have going on over there, by the way. You've got a lot of good stuff. But you said something that um, struck me as, well, anybody can claim this, right? Especially with what you're, you, the people you're trying to attract, right? You, you sure. put out there is the question was, uh, or some, the statement was something along the lines of why Class C isn't the best asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a true statement or is this something you just like to say to kind of get people away from investing in class C and come invest with you? Hey guys, I want to take a break real quick from the interview with Mr. Neil Bawa and let you know about the W2 Capitalist Mastermind. This is a virtual mastermind built for all experience levels and niches of real estate investors. We have over 20 calls that are hosted at various, t- various times all throughout the month. And it's a way for you to get connected with like-minded people from across the country who want to see you succeed, who have been through what you're going through, and want to help hold you accountable to building your own success. Link is in the show notes, and you can find out more at w2capitalist.com forward slash mastermind. But for now, let's get back to our interview with Mr. Neil Bawa. I invest in Class C. So uh, the 50% of my portfolio is Class C. Okay. And I still say it because I believe that Class C was the best investment three to four years ago. It and it 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 turned out to be the case. Class C rents went completely insane. Their occupancy was higher than BNA, and their rents were rising faster. All of those happened over the last four years. Just check out any any resource on multifamily, and you'll see that. Today, okay. I see that the situation has changed, and the reason for that is. The same Class C property is now $30,000 a unit more. Mm. And we're edging up to where the gap between a Class B property, which is 20 years newer, has more amenities, looks nicer, you know, probably doesn't have as many maintenance costs. <laughs> we're now within ten dollars or $12,000 a unit of that. So today, I don't think that Class C is the best opportunity. Now, these are all cycles. Guess what's yeah. happening now is that Class B prices are going up, so that gap is going to increase. But today the gap's too low, which is why I'm like, well, you should be buying class B or you should be doing new construction because you're, you're taking too much risk buying older, crappy, class C properties with, you know, they're going to have sewage issues. Their roofs are going to be old. There's mm-hmm. so many problems that you're buying. And for $12,000 a unit more, you could skip all of those problems. Your job on behalf of your investors is to do what is known as best risk reward. And Class C right now is just highest risk, not necessarily highest reward. Yeah. So Class C isn't the best asset now. But as you pointed out, as cycles continue to go, it could be come back. It could be the leader in the clubhouse because, as you said, you've got 50, almost 50% of your portfolio and it probably does very well. But when's the last time you bought something in Class C? Uh, It's been a while. So about a year and a half. So I haven't bought anything in Class C for 18 months or so. I've been buying bees. The one that I bought a year ago was a bee. Uh, and it's done really well. So, you know, no issues with delinquency, no issues with tenants not paying rents. Uh, obviously, there's lower cash flow in a bee than there is in a C, and I'm happy with it. So at this yeah. point, that's what I'm looking to do. But keep in mind, uh, let me give you an adjunct to that Instagram post. I don't even consider multifamily to be the best asset class in the United States. I'm in multifamily. That's what I make my money on. The best asset class in the United States today unquestionably is industrial assets. Why? Mm. Well, this will make resonate with everybody. In the last eight months, we've had eight 
years of e-commerce growth in eight months. And when you when you switch from retail to e-commerce, you're switching from strip malls to warehouses. Mm-hmm. We need two billion square feet more of warehouses than we did in Feb. Two billion. That's a ridiculously large number. It's going to take years to build 2 billion square feet of warehouses. But Amazon itself has forecasted that they will need 500 million square feet just for their own use. <laughs> right? And that doesn't really exist because how, many, how much of that could be have built in the last eight months in the middle of a shutdown? So mm. bottom line is, I mean, there's no asset class right now like industrial. I, so, I agree with you on that point. I, I think there's, you know, people will look at, because where we're at, some markets we've looked at, we've driven by, the malls are shut down. Not just even strip malls, but just entire big malls, know, yeah. name one of them, but big malls, yeah. And I've always wondered why somebody hasn't scooped those up. Somebody did here for where, where, where we're at in Pensacola, one of the malls here, and they tore it down. That's like, the only thing you can do. So a lot of people think, oh, we're going to tear this, we're going to go into this mall and we're going to build something in it. We're going to maybe build a multifamily or we're going to build a hotel. I can tell you 99% of the time, I've, I've looked at this math, I've tried to do it. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Malls are very expensive land, extremely expensive land. They've got very specific zoning. In three out of four cases, when you buy a mall, you're going to end up ripping it down and building something on it from scratch. Reusing malls is actually a very, very difficult process. And most people can do it. Believe it or not, the best reuse actually is industrial. But how can you do it when you're buying even a distressed mall? You're buying at three dollars a square foot, and you can buy a new industrial at a dollar twenty-five. So mm-hmm. they don't do it simply because it never makes any sense to them. Yeah. Well, on the industrial space, all this warehouse space that we need. What is? Um, I mean, when I think of a warehouse, I think of something that's a hundred thousand square feet minimal, right? Mm-hmm. Or even bigger. I don't even know where to start with, but I see all these strip malls that don't have that kind of space, uh, and and they're staying empty. They're going to be empty because, like you just said, we experienced eight yep. years of e-commerce growth in the last eight months. Yep. Um, some may even quite those conspiracy theorists out there may even question who's behind the whole COVID thing. Is it Mr. Bezos? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, but you know what? What can we do with these strip malls? That are, that are sitting empty and they're going to sit empty for a long time. It's very difficult. And, and a lot of people, again, are like, I can turn my strip malls into industrial. No, you can't. They don't have roll-up doors. They don't have right. ramps. They don't have any of those things. You can't really ever do industrial with these things. So your choices are actually pretty narrow. There's only certain things you can do because of zoning and city laws and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's a very difficult ask. What I think is going to do is some of them are going to get repurposed for things like senior housing, which, you know, there's going to be a boom in senior housing over the next 10 years. And you can take some of the strip malls that are zoned a certain way, and you can basically convert them into small senior housing projects. And then medical office. So we just went through the greatest, you know, healthcare emergency in, in modern mm-hmm. history. Well, as a result, as you can imagine, Nobody anywhere will be cutting down healthcare budgets. It just will make no sense. Now (laughs) you have, yeah, I mean, and and then you have this new concept of, you know, do we need to do X and Y, which previously we didn't have money for. Now we need to do it simply because we can't tell people, oh, we knew about COVID and still didn't do some of these things. So bottom line is healthcare budgets are going to keep rising, which means that there's a number of different uh, healthcare aspects like immunology and, and you know, infection disease, infection control, these are all things that we'll see boost. 
And you can very easily take small strip malls and start converting them into medical offices that are not specific need. Like a dentist medical office is very specific need, water requirements and, and sewer requirements. But, but immunology does not require that. So you can basically take that and reuse it. So I think that they'll get reused a lot. I also think they'll get torn down a lot. So I, I think mm -hmm. that the retail apocalypse is, is up upon us. And yeah. you're going to see some, uh, some zombie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all going to turn into bargain centers. And um, what's, we have a lot of them around here that are converted to like um, uh, antique shops. <laughs> so those are those are coming upon us for sure. All right. So you, back more on your Instagram. I told you that there were a couple of things that, um, that you posted. I want to get into. We're almost up on time. But I want to get into at least one of these. The first one. In case we have time for for a second one, you posted it doesn't matter who wins the presidency, right? We're still it says November sixteenth when we're recording this. One side's claiming winner, one's not uh, conceding. There's a lot of stuff going on. We don't know. Possibly we won't know for uh, it could be till after Christmas, right? Sure. Or the New Year. Yeah. Um, why does it not matter? Okay, so the comment was specific to real estate, so maybe I can say. It yes. doesn't matter for real estate who wins the presidency. Okay. Is it, is it okay to make that modification? That, yes. And I, I was not trying to set you up. I forgot to say that part. You did say that in your Instagram post for real estate investors. It does not matter who wins the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Because the president of the United States is the chairman of the fed when it comes to the real estate people. If you look at what has happened in real estate in the last 10 years, none of our gains, or I should say a very small percentage of our gains have come from what any Republican or Democrat has done, failed to do, or anything related to that. The vast majority of our money has come in because the Fed over the last 15 years has completely changed the way that they do business, flooding the market with humongous amounts of money. They call it quantitative easing, QE1, 2, 3, 4, QE forever. And then cutting interest rates, right? Now By the way, your, your propeller head was just spinning like a top just then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Those people, they are the ones that are controlling our destiny at this point in time. If you're a real estate investor today, you're in a very, very good place. 48 out of 50 markets are hitting all, term, all times high. In the middle of a pandemic where we can't even evict people, there are no price drops in multifamily, which makes no sense until you understand that we also have the friendliest Fed in history. Mm. They're they're friendly beyond all reasonable you know, assumptions. And so to me, the only time when Republicans or Democrats make a difference, they any anytime they move the needle, is when a party has the Senate and the presidency, and they they they're very, very close on the House. So they're they're very close, which certainly wasn't the case. Obviously, the, the, the Democrats had full control of the House for the last four months, four years. So what we have today is a hung presidency, a president who, you know, in this case, it's going to be a Democrat president, most likely. And he's going to have to basically deal with a Republican Senate and, and a House, which is fractured. His own House is fractured between left and far left. His ability mm. to do much is restricted. Now, you might think that that's bad. Yes, it's horrible for the for the for the country, but we're talking about real estate. Real estate actually thrives when there's hung governments, and we haven't really had anything but a hung government. Obama had a clear mandate from 2008 to 2010, didn't manage to do anything except Obamacare. That's one 
thing that he got done during the time when he had mandate. Then Republicans had it for a couple of years and they managed to get the tax cuts. They had their tax cuts. They, that was a big one for them. They managed to get that done. That did help real estate, right? So my point was, if you get, if you control presidency, Senate and House, you can get stuff done that can hurt real estate or help real estate. But otherwise, it's the Fed. It's the Fed. And the chairman of the uh, the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, was appointed by Trump, right? And yeah, he's gonna right. he's gonna be there for a while. Um, okay. That makes sense. I was hoping for a debate, but now you've, you've, I don't have anything to debate with you. <laughs> I knocked it out of the park. Uh, yeah, you did. You did. I, I have nothing to rebuttal. That was awesome. That's, that's, All right, really, so, that's the thinking process. I mean, it's really the 35,000 foot view, right? Yeah. 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 And you know, I, I hate when people get caught up on what's going to happen with the election. Just, I said the day I voted, I went live and I was like, look guys, if you've gone and vote, You've done your thing. You, you've done your part. Now, go get to work. Don't worry about all the crap and craziness going to happen over the, today and the next several weeks. And I was right. It's, it's been nuts and everybody's getting pissed off and everybody's like, they're cheating or whatever the case is. Whatever. It's not you getting worried about it and stressing over it is not going to have any outcome on what is decided. Right? It's out of our hands. We've exactly. I mean, President Trump has been involved in hundreds of lawsuits in the last 30 years. If somebody is disenfranchising Trump, he knows how to take care of that. Yeah, yeah. No one yeah. knows how to do that better than <laughs> President Trump does, right? Yeah. So if somebody is screwing him, he's going to have a million lawyers up their ass. Yeah. Even that you don't have a million lawyers, just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so the other post that I saw you, you have uh, out there, it takes... I think it takes money to make money, right? And one of your one of your posts was talking about, and I hear this a lot of times that you you can make money uh, with zero with no investments, right? I, I would love for you to dive in and just kind of give it a little bit more of your point there and what you mean by that, because it could be possible. This is going to be a very short conversation, just like before, just like the last topic, in that I didn't get everything I needed out of the Instagram to make sure I understood your position, right? Because sure. I sit over That's here and the I problem think problem with Instagram, right? You have uh, to yeah, say no. stuff and then you don't get to explain it. Yeah. Right. It, so here, here we go. So, <laughs> so um, once again, that was specific to multifamily. So in, in the multifamily yep. arena, I, I actually, Jay, know more than a hundred people that over the last two years have made substantial amounts of money. They've never invested a dollar of their own money and they probably invested a little bit of an education. And they've done something that I actually don't advise doing, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. I'm against it. I advise against it, but it's true. And that is that in the multifamily arena, there's so many investors who do not want to basically buy their own multifamilies, build their own, improve them. They're looking to do passive investment. And you mentioned that word earlier in, in this interview, you mentioned passive investment. And there, I know of more than 100 people who just go out and find these investors and connect them with opportunities that other people have put together. Mm -hmm. Now, do I do that? No. Have I ever done that once? Have I ever paid somebody one cent to connect me with passive investors? No. <clears throat> but A, that doesn't make it wrong. And B, I'm a nobody, right? There's just 10,000 properties being worked on. So what I care, what I do doesn't matter. What matters is that there are literally thousands of projects right now 
where people are simply doing introductions. They're doing it in a way that is legally extremely fuzzy. Let's just say we'll, mm. we'll call it gray, though it's a little leaning. And you're talking it. about the the gray area of being a sophisticated versus accredited investor and what's established somebody as a sophisticated investor. Am I following you there? That's correct. And even okay. if the investor is accredited, even then there are laws that people are not necessarily towing the line on. But for the moment, we have a very flexible and friendly SEC, the Securities and Exchange mm. Commission, is also filled with Trump appointees who are very friendly at this point. We'll see what happens with Biden. But at the moment, they're really not out there beating the crap out of people for doing this. So when you learn how to connect passive investors with people who buy multifamily property, it's truly one of those cases where you're not investing money. The closest analogy to that is people- But you don't recommend people doing that, right? Um, Oddly enough, I don't have a, uh, well, I recommend it in a modified way. I say, do that because it helps you get started and then get out of it as quickly as you can. Okay. So think of that as a stepping stone. But if you do it more than twice or thrice, then I think that you're, you're cheating yourself. You're cheating yourself out of a future. You gave yourself the credibility. You gave yourself the, the ability to get started. You gave yourself money in your pocket. And then you basically just kept doing the same thing. Just like, people who do, you know, they, they, they kind of flip contracts to people, mm-hmm. right? A lot of them say, I flip contracts to build up wealth. And then I use that wealth to do my own flips or to do my own rental. It's, it's just a ways to a means, right? That's what I mean. Raise money for other people, do it a few times. You'll get a bunch of investors that will follow you because they, mm-hmm. they think that you're the one that's, that these are not your project, even though they're not. And then do your own projects. So yeah. If you listen to all of it, I'm not opposed to it. Gotcha. I still think it takes money to to get started there because if you if you're the guy that's going out and finding the deal, right? Mm-hmm. You you're putting it under contract. You've got to you've got to put a pretty sizable EMD down. I mean, you you know, and if you get to the point where you're um, starting due diligence, then then you're putting some money down to start to do due diligence that you get back in closing. So I don't know. I still think it takes money to, to make money, but I I understand what you mean. I just hear that phrase all the time. And I'm just like, I, I'm apparently either not that much of a hustler or I don't know how to do it. You know what I mean? So when I hear people say that and that they did this, just like self-made millionaires, there is no self-made millionaire in, in the U.S. There's no yeah, way I, any, I, anybody I'll, got to I'll where they're this. on their own. You know what I mean? The vast majority of times people say these things, they do it for clickbait reasons. And there's yeah. no doubt that my Instagram team made the same, you know, did the same thing. In my case, obviously, I gave you a full explanation, which Instagram doesn't allow me to. Yeah. But I think that <laughs> yeah. as far as I know, my social media team is as clickbaity as anyone else's. And I think that most people who say that you don't need money to make money are either they have a backup explanation that you should hear, or they're just trying to get eyeballs and they don't care about the unethical nature of their statement. Mm. Yeah. That's true. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Very, very good. All right. We have five minutes. I want to do a section of the show. It's called off the wall. Just been doing it for weeks. Didn't know what I was going to call into today. It is three random questions that uh, come out of this little app that I have on here. Don't worry. They are safe for work. There's none. I have filtered out most of the ones that are uh, truly Damn way you, off man. the wall. Yeah. All, <laughs> All the right. weird ones. Yeah, all the weird ones, they they're uh, they get filtered out. All right, question number one. 
since we were talking about college earlier, do you have an incident from college you wish you could erase? Heck yeah. Yeah. Somebody pulled my pants down and I don't think I ever recovered. <laughs> what, like were you in a group of crowd of people? What crowd of people somebody pulled story. my pants down? Oh my god. And the underwear was loose. <laughs> oh man. Can't oh, that's good. That. That's good. Yeah. I'm haunted uh, by it. <laughs> hey, by the way, this is not an off the wall question. I'm curious, what program what language did you program in? Um, so started Primarily. with COBOL and then C. Okay. Yeah. Those, okay. Are, those are the two. All right. How would you describe yourself to a blind person in five words or less? Mm, just a very normal dude. That's five. Just a very normal dude. And I'm assuming this person wasn't blind when they were born. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. If, maybe because so. if, they, if they, if they weren't blind when they were born, they know what normal dudes look like. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Ah, man. I, I, I only had five words though. So you got to accept. No, that. I know. I know. I, I'm just sitting here thinking about folks who are blind. I just can't, I can't imagine what, what, how I would handle that. It would not be good if, if I lost my sight at this point in time. Um, what is, all right. So number three off the wall, what is one thing you wish you had spent more time doing when you were younger? Oh, I think, um, and, and this, this is when I say younger, I mean the last 10, 15 years, I, we were I were younger more time. than five minutes ago, right? Five minutes That's ago right. was younger than we That's were. Right. So it's <laughs> more. Um, yeah. I think vetted my partners better. I have, Oh, wow. Okay. I've learned over time. I've become very skilled at vetting my partners and understanding partnerships. I didn't really understand the consequences of having partners. And I've never had a partner that was a thief. I've never had a partner that was a thug or stole money, but I have suffered greatly in partnerships. So what I've found is while real estate is one of those phenomenal places, you know, businesses for partnerships, you really have to spend time thinking about it because you're really getting into bed with somebody. You're getting married to them, especially multifamily, right? Five years, yeah. 10 years. And yeah. uh, it, it's always a very messy divorce. Yeah. I've gone through yeah. Partnerships and uh, and multifamily last longer than some marriages. That is for sure. Uh, and, they're good and ones. Like you now said, I have great ones. So. Yeah. <laughs> what's the What's the biggest vetting? Uh, your number one vetting uh, process you go through with when talking to a uh, a potential partner? They say out there that first you need to look for people who are ethical, and then you, look, you need to look for competency. Ethical is more important than competency. I've found that not to be true. I've actually yeah. found that sometimes I've had partners that were very ethical. These people are more honest than me. They're more um, kind than me, but they're nowhere near the level of competency that we needed. So the truth actually is that that statement, which is very common, look for ethics first, then competency is wrong. And you, you need both. If you ever put $1 of an investor's money in, you need both. So the yeah. amount of time that you need to spend confirming both of those is is key. And and when I started out, I would just confirm their ethics, their heart. Gotcha. What do you mean by more honest than me? Well, I mean, I look at we're all honest by degrees, right? There's no such thing as an honest person. I think that um, oh. I I may not be completely <laughs> honest with the internal revenue service, for example. Um, and I I know lots of people that are not completely honest with the IRS. Um, so I, when I look at that, I see gradations of honesty and I, I, I know people mm. who are more honest than I am, but those people didn't turn out to be at the level of competency 
that I expected mm. them to be at. And so I found that honesty isn't everything when it comes to partnership. You know, and I think this is where my computer science background does me a disservice. I tend to look at things as binary. It's a one or a zero, you know, and and that comes and that comes along with uh, building relationships. Most folks in my life, they have hit a home run every time it's come in the moment they slip up, they get turned to a zero. Right. And uh, I'm same way with the honesty is that either I'm being honest or I'm not. Right. Uh, now there may be times where I don't know that I'm not being honest because of the IRS or whatever stuff they put. And that's why I have a CPA that tells me that I'm doing that or not. But, uh, I don't know. That's interesting. That's uh, different degrees of, uh, honesty. All right. Neil, I want to be respectful of your time. We, we are right on an hour. Uh, I want to make sure people know how to, to find out more about you. Obviously I'm going to make a link to your Instagram uh, profile, but you have so much more going on. Multifamily University, the Grow Capitas piece. Take it. Take us a few minutes. Tell us about each one of those, and then uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Sure. For people that are interested in learning more about any kind of commercial asset class, whether it's multifamily or storage or industrial or student housing, senior housing, check out multifamilyu.com or type multifamily university into the web. We do about twenty webinars a year. About fifty thousand people attend these webinars. And they are deep dive webinars, very content rich, extremely content rich and extremely eye candy. We love creating beautiful presentations. <laughs> and so check those out. They're free. They're always meant to be free. We also have a real estate toolkit that we update four times a year. And it's extremely powerful. It has incredible amounts of content on, on what you should be doing. It basically is a, is a toolkit for people that want to empower themselves on whatever kind of investment they may be looking to do, not with us, just by themselves. Um, so those are two things that you should check out, Multifamily University. If you want to know where to invest in the United States, what are the specific ways to invest in the U.S., what cities, what neighborhoods, go to udemy.com slash real focus, and you'll notice that there's about 10,000 people taking my, my uh, most popular course. And Can you spell that out for me? Because I hear you, yeah. Y-O-U, to me. Oh, uh, so the letter U, D-E-M-Y, U-D-E-M-Y dot com slash real focus, R-E-A-L focus. And you'll see a huge number of people taking that course. And you can read their reviews and figure out if that course is for you. Uh, and then if you're interested in passive investment, we are distributing millions of dollars each year of passive uh, you know, cash flow to our investors. We've invested over $60 million of investor money into multifamily, student housing, industrial, um, townhomes, new construction, value add, all sorts of assets. So it's a very diversified portfolio, but you get to pick the assets that you're interested in. For that, check out growcapitus.com. That's G-R-O, no W, G-R-O, capitus, C-A-P-I-T-U-S.com. And you'll see some interesting stuff, including tons of investor, investor evaluations and reviews of people that have gone full cycle with us on their investment. So check out brokecapitals.com. I want to make sure I heard, heard you correctly in that you distribute millions of dollars a year to investors. In cash flow. That is correct. In cash Every flow. year, including that this year. Is, and that, you know, what's awesome, this year hasn't been much worse. I mean, we've dipped maybe 10 <laughs> or 15%, but most yeah. of that was because we stopped distributing in Q2 as a- As a, as a precautionary you know, measure. As right. a precautionary measure, but we restarted yep them in Q3. So there was a, a dip there and we're going to catch those investors up to that money because it sat in our bank and didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Um, which is but, just, um, 
That's a statement. That's a goal. That's a, that's a new goal. I want to be able to distribute $1 million in cash flow a year. That's awesome. It, it's, it's pretty awesome to be able to do that and to get feedback from investors that we're making a difference in their life. Yeah. Um, one other, one last way to get in touch with me, the easiest probably, I happen to be, for better or for worse, the only Neil Bauer on the World Wide Web. So if you type in <laughs> N-E-A-L, yeah, and Bauer, B-A-W-A, hit enter, the first three or 400 articles are all about it. So you can, about you. Well, it's because you're yes. on everybody's podcast. That's what the deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it makes it easy for you to do like Neil Bauer scam, whatever it is that you're trying to do to check me out. I am not the only Jay Helms and the guy who has the domain jhelms.com. I've been, I, I can show you the, the log every year. I send him an email. Hey man, you, uh, are you thinking, cause he's, he's a professor and, uh, Hey, you think about retiring? You, uh, you want to make a deal on the domain? Right. every year for the last seven or eight years and you'll uh, get there finally you'll get there i hope so <laughs> neil thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and allowing me to pick on you a little bit and pick your brain and, and get to know more about you because i've been hearing a lot of a lot of great stuff and now now i know why now i know why so uh hopefully we can do it again until next time we'll see you Would later love to. thanks jay right. bye-bye all right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Neil. Uh, here's what I recommend as you as next steps. Number one, connect with with Neil. He's extremely active on Instagram, primarily where he hangs out. Check out some of the other resources he talks about there at the end. Uh, all those links are in the show notes. Too many to go over here for here. But the second thing is, I want to invite you to engage with the W2 Capitalist community and let me know what resonated with you from today's episode. We talk about a lot. There's a few things that Neil and I disagree with. Um, he seems to think, and this is something we didn't even get into because there was just not enough time. Uh, he seems to think in the way he, he actually worded some of his answers and some of his statements that Biden's going to be in the president, uh, whatnot. So I'm just curious on what you think. Number one, who's going to be the president? Number two, is that going to affect how you invest in real estate? So let us know more. You can just go to w2capitalist.com, find, find the community button, or you can go directly to w2capitalist.com forward slash community, and it'll put you right there. So let us know. Let us know what you're thinking. All right, guys, get out there, earn, invest, repeat.